You're listening to the Created For podcast. We believe that everyone was created to make a unique impact in the world. Creative Four is a podcast to explore ideas around purpose, calling, and discovering how God is inviting you to influence the world in your own way right now. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Chris Gabriel serves as both a crew campus team leader and West Coast cross-cultural training coordinator. These roles and his bicultural Lebanese heritage help him pioneer the creation of cross-cultural evangelism tools, like Cruise I Am From cards. He lives in Tucson with his wife, Alyssa, and their three-year-old daughter, Nora. In his Creative Poor talk last month, Chris shared about stewarding the gift of your culture and ethnicity. Okay, Chris, in your Creative Four talk, you shared a really vulnerable experience about how you endured racism during the aftermath of 9-11 and how that influenced your calling. And I just want to say, I'm so sorry that that Mm. happened to you. And thank you for sharing it as part of your talk. Mm. So I'm wondering what are some other significant parts of your story that formed who you are and the work you do today? Yeah, there's a there's a lot I can share, a lot of stories to pick from. Uh, but one that's particularly significant is I was actually denied a grant uh, for a nonprofit work uh, because I I didn't qualify as an ethnic minority. I wasn't minority enough, uh, and it turns out that this grant was determining uh, minority status based on the U.S. Census, which then leads to a whole lot of mess of brokenness in the U.S. Census of how Arabs and Middle Eastern people are to be marked as white on the census. And so that got me digging into why is that? Why am I marked as white, but not given the privileges of being white? And so I, as I dug into it, saw that this goes all the way back to 1890 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, when the law of the land was that only white men could be U.S. citizens. And it was on a case-by-case basis. And the first wave of Arab immigration happened to the States. They would come in and argue their their status as as white in order to become a citizen of the states, and that has lingered since then. So we are classified as white, but not given the privileges of that, and there's no box that actually represents me. And so this this grant was functioning off of that. And so as I spoke to the administrators of the grant and kind of explained uh, my ethnic minorityness to uh, white leaders, I had to communicate the the brokenness of this method of uh, of determining ethnic minority status and now since then like this this grant has opened up towards more than just the u.s census markings of ethnic minority status but to marginalized communities in general uh, it has been a big win but that has really formed me into the work of advocacy the work of knowing myself and knowing where i fit in my story and being confident in that in my in my place uh, that has led to the creation of I Am From Cards, that has led to uh, different Bible studies that I have written and worked through, different messages I've given. Uh, that that burden of trying to advocate for myself makes me want makes me not want to have others go through that themselves. That I want them to already have been advocated for and have the path uh, blazed for them. Yeah, you're paving the way, pioneering. Yeah. 
Can you tell us more about how your work creating the I Am From cultural conversation cards has just flowed right out of your own story? Yeah, uh, like I mentioned, uh, understanding myself more led to that. Uh, and it was at a, at a conference I attended that they uh, they gave out these cards, these like demographic cards to everyone in the attendance of the conference and just said, get to know someone else using these cards. And it was a really great concept. Uh, the cards in and of themselves were not designed for anything other than a get to know you icebreaker type situation. But as I was going through the cards, I noticed once again, the demographics were the U.S. Census. And there is no place for me except for the word that I've grown to hate, other. I just am continually otherized uh, by this type of demographicking, if you will. Uh, and so as I saw this, I was like, I need to create a space where I am represented. Uh, and that not just myself, but those that are like me can be seen as well. And for about four years, I had this dream of like wanting to create a tool that is like this so that all people can feel represented and then also engage with the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. And so as I was going through this dream, this uh, this desire to create it, four years later, I was given a position where I could create these cards. Uh, and so I created these I Am From Cultural Conversation cards with, with a purpose of being as broad as possible so people can see themselves reflected in it. And then being uh, used in such a way that they can that the participants feel known, and that I, as a, as a missional image bearer of God, can better communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to an unbelieving image bearer of God uh, by getting to know their story more, by getting to know what they need from the gospel specifically. Yeah, tell us some of your favorite stories from times that you've used those I Am From cards to build bridges into conversations with people. Yeah, I have I have one story that's probably my favorite of all time. Uh, and it's with, it's with a student in a, in a college campus that I was, I was working with. And, and this student, uh, he is of native descent, but is an adherent to Islam. And so you can see kind of like the synchronization of his spiritual beliefs kind of folding together. Uh, and as we were going through the cards, I'm, I'm starting to discover that he has a big value of control. And he was ostracized for wanting control. Now, if I were to share the gospel with him saying that he is sinful and needs Jesus, like that wouldn't be groundbreaking for him. He would have agreed with me that he had sin. Like that is not something that was new to him. But what was interesting is that he was ostracized for his desire for control. So instead of turning to Romans 3 saying all have sinned, I turned to Genesis 1 with him. And I said that you were created to have control. You were created to have dominion over creation. But because of sin, we now have battle for control with each other. And we're fighting each other for taking power from others. And that was the first time he's ever engaged with that. When he was affirmed in his value of wanting some sort of control, his dignity was heard and responded to. And then he was told that his creator also values him having that control as well, but sin taints that. That was so unique for him, and it was so um, mind-blowing for him that he wanted to know more about it. And that would not have happened if I would have used a traditional gospel tool to have those conversations with him. He would have just blown me off as a, another crazy Christian trying to speak to a Muslim. So cool. Yeah. You know, in your Created For talk, you spoke about Moses' identity as a tricultural individual. 
And recently I was listening to the Bible Project podcast. They had Esau Macaulay as a guest, and he was talking about Genesis 48.5, where Jacob blesses his half-Jewish, half-Egyptian grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and that the blessing involved their ethnicity. Esau's his quote was, God made a promise um, to me that he would make me a family of, of many nations. Well, he was quoting uh, Jacob. So, what are other scripture passages that relate to your story and your work in this area of cultural ad- and ethnic identity? Yeah, I, I love that, by the way. That is beautiful and powerful. Um, you saw my colleague, brilliant man. I wish I get to know him sometime. But this this concept of like Bible passages that speak to identity, the first thing that comes to mind is Luke chapter 4. Uh, when I think of Jesus's uh, beginning of his ministry, as he's going to the synagogue, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and then he goes off and starts saying, in this, uh, you have heard it fulfilled. And he he references uh, the work that Elijah does uh, with, a, with a widow in Sidon and says that there are many widows during the great famine in Israel, but none had faith like the woman in Sidon. And he, Elijah goes to that woman and cares for her and provides all the bread and oil they need for all of that. And then he goes on to use Naaman uh, as the the Syrian leader, saying that there were many people that had leprosy in Israel, but it was Naaman who was healed from it. And that was uh, cleansed from it by the, by the prophets. Uh, And he, he uses this to kind of shame the nationalistic pride that the religious leaders had, that these religious people had and saying that the the kingdom of God is more than this, that it's greater and it's a greater understanding than what we had just originally believed in for simply those that come from the seed of Jacob. Uh, But it is now for all peoples and understand this wider ethnic uh, demographic, this ethnic scope. And then I have a very unique tie to this passage because the the, the widow in Sidon might, could very well be my ancestor. When I think about my dad being born and raised in Sidon, like he was born and raised in the city where Elijah went and ministered to this widow. And then Naaman could also be my ancestor because my mother is from Syria, from not too far away from Damascus. And so when Jesus is using this widow from Sidon in this leader from Damascus, he's saying that my ancestors, Chris Gabriel's ancestors, were the uh, examples of faith to the Israelite people, saying that there's more faith in these Gentiles than in the Israelite people. Uh, And it's very encouraging for me personally, because my heritage and lineage, but it's also powerful showing the ethnic identity journey that Jesus was trying to take Israel through by removing nationalistic pride from their hearts. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about calling. So you've given us some examples from your own story of the way that God has used your identity and different um, experiences that you've had to inform your calling and your work. Can you tell us more about what has that looked like practically over your lifetime so far, just to have God continually confirming your calling? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually been doing a lot of reflecting on God's calling in my life um, lately. And as I as I think about the ways that God has shown up, He has been graciously clear to me more than I deserve, which is, I guess, the definition of grace, uh, but how He has uh, led my family 
very clearly with uh, presentations of his his decisions for us. Because I think probably the clearest example of that is as we were seeking the Lord's will for when we should start having a family, uh, I was looking at how much funding I had for for my ministry. And I was like, oh, I need about $700 of monthly support to be fully funded. And it took me about 11 partners to get $50 a month when I went, finished my initial fundraising development. Uh, and so when I saw that I needed 700 partners, I was like, all right, or $700. I was like, okay, this might be two or three years before we start having a family and growing our family. Uh, within a week, I didn't make a single ask and the Lord brought in $700 of monthly support. It was it was so clear to the point where I was like, I'll be in sin if we don't start trying to grow our family. Uh, the Lord has been graciously clear in affirming in, in that. Like that is beyond clear to us. Uh, but I, I get this as I reflect on uh, the scriptures when he says that God is not withholding of wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom to ask him for it, he will give generously. Like God doesn't dangle the carrot of wisdom in front of us saying, do you wish he had some more? But no, he gives it to us freely. And so I've taken his word at that. And I asked the Lord for wisdom often with, for his guidance in small decisions to big decisions and raising my children. Uh, he is very generous with his wisdom. And and I think a part of that wisdom comes affirmation of calling and trusting him in that. So just being wise of knowing who he is and how he leads us in that way. And a big part of that led to me knowing myself and knowing how I respond to the Lord's communication to me. Like, is my general response to him resistance? Then I need to start repenting of that resistance. Uh, just like I had to know my general response to my wife and my knee-jerk reactions to some of her things, I had to learn my knee-jerk reactions to the Lord's communication to me uh, and then understand how this communication relationship will work by doing that work of knowing myself and knowing God. Yeah. Can you tell us more about, you said, um, hearing from God and asking God for wisdom. So are you talking about prayer or what are some of these practices that you're working in to your daily life in order to stay connected? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Number one would be prayer. Like I, every single night, like I'm praying that the Lord would give me wisdom in the various things that I have the next day. Like I pray through my calendar, like what do I have on my next day? And then ask the Lord for wisdom in that. Um, That has been critical. And that actually is a discipline. Like it's not easy. Like I don't think I'm gifted in prayer. Like there are some people that are gifted that their first thought is I must pray. That has become a discipline in my life that I don't necessarily always pray throughout the day. Like I got to confess, I don't live out second Corinthians or second Thessalonians five very well. Um, I do cease my prayer sometimes, but I, I have to make that discipline of that uh, followed by like spending that discipline time of in the scripture. So I, I make my prayers And then I go seek the scriptures and I oftentimes have to do a um, Bible reading plan in order to be, uh, to remain faithful to it or else I'm like, Oh, do I want to read Ephesians today or first Chronicles or whatever? But if I have a plan that just guides me through it, that helps me practically stay faithful to the scriptures to be hearing from the Lord in the scriptures and then bringing my petitions to him in prayer and then seeing how my petitions are molded based off of my time in the scripture. Let's also talk about community. So, Chris, who has God put in your life to support you in your calling, in the work that you're doing, and vice versa, where you're supporting them in, in their calling and their work too? Yeah. 
Yeah, the, I really have a, a couple of areas of community that I, I find myself in. There's a a group of, of BIPOC people that I have in my in my life that I engage with more raw realities of myself. And, and for those uh, that are familiar, BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, People of Color. And as I'm spending time with other people of color, uh, I get to be more raw and understand more of how, like, and not be gaslit. Uh, I like to tell them, like, this is a space where I can be flippant and not be afraid of being who I am and not thinking of how I will be received. Um, and that's been super encouraging for me to have those moments of that. Um, and we get to kind of do that together collectively for each other, to affirm each other, to empower each other. And then I think about like, I go to a white evangelical church. That's my home church. And I, I do love my church. Like I love my people. I love them. I have a lot of hurt, but I love them so much. And in this, I have a, a group of people in our church that I have that are safe, that are white people that I get to engage with and, and share with them. Like this is some of the ways that, uh, I have experienced racism within our church or racism or uh, in, inequality. And we get to have these types of conversations and they also get to help advocate for me uh, as, as I don't have to be the the angry minority that's sharing this. Like there can be other people uh, that are more uh, resemblant to leadership in our churches that can speak to that as well. Um, and so it's been, it's really good to have a, a multi-ethnic sphere of community uh, where I can have spaces where I can be myself. I can also have spaces where I can live cross-culturally and have people that I can advocate for and have others that can advocate for me. So it's kind of an all of the above type of answer. Yeah. What's your church background? When did you first start attending church and have you always been in white evangelical churches? Yeah. When I first started going to church, I was uh, a sophomore in high school uh, first time I'd go to church and yeah, it was a white evangelical church. And then when I went off to college, I actually went to a cult for a semester. That's a hot mess that I can share about some other time. I uh, didn't know it was a cult. I was very young in my faith and uh, I praise the Lord for his saving grace to pull me out of this cult. Um, but, and then, yeah, I've been going to more white evangelical churches um, since then. And uh, living in Tucson at the time, Tucson, when I was in college was in the top 10 least church cities in America. And the churches in town were few and far between. And so I had to find a church that was in the suburbs of Tucson, which is a pretty white part of our city. And so I would be driving out to the burbs to go to church. And now there's more churches, praise the Lord. But since I've gotten connected to a church body, I don't have a, uh, a, I would say, a biblical reason of breaking fellowship. Like there's no heresy being taught. There's no spiritual abuse, praise the Lord. Um, And so we're sticking there. We're connected there and have some healthy relationships. So my entire church experience since my sophomore, with the exception of uh, the cult has been a white evangelical uh, experience. So when you, um, one second, I just lost my train of thought. Did your parents raise you in a church or what was it like for your parents as Arab Americans when you started attending church? Tell us more about that story. Yeah. Uh, when my parents came to the States, like 
they were Christian. Like in, in the Middle East, there's no agnostic or atheist or any of that, of that kind of stuff. There's Muslim and there's Christian and you're born one or the other. Like that is what it is. Um, and I actually can trace my lineage uh, pretty far back to like the, how there were missionaries. Like my great, great grandfather was the first missionary in our family and actually gave his life for the gospel on the streets of Lebanon. Um, and so there's a history of loving Jesus in my family. Uh, but my fam- when my parents came to the States, like, yeah, they went to church when they first here, they're in Iowa, but then they moved out to Arizona and we didn't really go to church when I was in, uh, growing up in Arizona until my sophomore year uh, when we made another move and my dad's like, we're going to go to church. I was not fond of the idea of like waking up early on the weekend, uh, but yeah, it was going to this church uh, that I actually met the Lord. Uh, they did a youth trip to Six Flags in Las Vegas. And what high schooler is going to say no to Six Flags in Vegas? So I went on this trip. And then in Vegas, they went to another church, uh, like the sister church that planted ours, heard the gospel of uh, Jesus proclaimed through the woman caught in adultery and how the whole city wanted to shame her. uh, But Jesus saw value in her regardless of what other people saw. And I wanted that. And so I chased after Jesus literally in that moment as I ran to the altar, knocked a girl over on my way up there to to meet Jesus, um, and then started my my faith journey then. But yeah, my, my parents... We're all for it. Like, as long as I was doing something good, they were for it in that in that capacity. Yeah. So it seems like you've mostly grown up in white spaces. Is mm-hmm. that, or did you have an Arab American community that you were connected to? And just you have such a, um, you have such a strong connection to your Arab American identity. How have your parents helped instill that in you? Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, I had, I did grow up in a mostly white community. Uh, My, my grandfather was essentially the de facto leader of the Arab community in like the Phoenix area uh, where at least monthly, if not more, we would go to their house for dinner parties and I hated it because, you know, I was the only kid there as all people my grandparents' age. But it was very much like what you would – if you could imagine or if you know of anything that's like type typical Arab dinner parties, like it was that. Lots of food, lots of like drinking, lots of loudness, but not yelling, but like just being loud. Um, and that kind of was like underlying formulating like parts of me. But then when we would leave those things, I'd be going to a mostly white school with mostly white friends. Uh, and it just led to a lot of confusion. And my parents, they they really tried to assimilate into, into white America when they came to the States. And I would imagine it to be like kind of a, a defense mechanism. Like if you want to succeed, you assimilate to the do- dominant culture. Uh, and yeah, there was, there was tension in like that bicultural experience where uh, being Arab at home and being white outside of the home led to to some sort of confusion. And the reason why I decided to lean more into my heritage is because I'm like, I want to know more of how God made me and God made me Arab. Uh, as much as I experienced uh, and uh, influent in white culture, that I also have a very unique experience as being Arab, uh, of, exp- of having those Arab dinner parties, of 
speaking Arabic all the time of my, of my dad and I having secret conversations when we're trying to go buy a car together and just to, just to like play the game with the salesman and to speak to each other about random things in Arabic. So they know that we're talking about them. Uh, like we have these like little, uh, these abilities and these tools. And so I've decided to lean into it and like study more of myself. Uh, and not everyone in my family has done that. There's many in my family that have rejected their Arab heritage uh, and many in mine that have really embraced it. And so it's kind of a, a point of contention across the cousins, across the uncles and aunts when it comes to our heritage and our culture. Chris, if you had one invitation for followers of Jesus who are listening today who want to step into their calling, what would that one invitation be? If I had one invitation, it would be to know yourself, study your culture, study your heritage, study your reactions, study yourself. Um, we we teach everyone to go to to go to school. We teach people in America to value education, go to college, get a degree, learn. In my case, microbiology, study these things and get a degree in that. But we don't necessarily platform getting a degree and knowing yourself. And so I really would invite uh, people to followers of Jesus to study their own history and themselves to know God more because uh, God created us. And that's the best way to steward our Imago day is as we study ourselves, we're studying how God made us. And then that's act of worship is if we truly believe that Psalm 139 is real, that God fearfully and wonderfully made us in the womb, then we should be fearfully and wonderfully studying ourselves. Image bearer, do you know yourself? What is your cultural and ethnic background and identity? If you'd like a tool to help you explore these topics with your friends and family, visit crewstore.org and search for the I Am From Cultural Conversation Cards. Creative Four is hosted and produced by Crew. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, or review it wherever you listen. For more resources to continue your journey to living out your impact, check out the show notes on our website, crew.org backslash created for, or follow us on Instagram at underscore created for. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again on the next episode with Liz Bohannon, when we'll talk about small dreams that make a big impact.